This morning's reading is going to come from Psalm 13. I'm letting Mark get to his seat, so. Okay. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. and My foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. All right. That's coming in a little hot. All right, how's that? Still a little warm? They're working on it. We don't know who's working on it, but somebody's working on it. It's behind the curtain. If all goes well, you'll never see them or notice them. Well, welcome again to Trinity Community Church. It's really good to see you. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors, if I haven't met you yet. If you're new, we're especially glad you're here, and I look forward to meeting you. Um, something I, I got super consumed with this week, totally fascinating. 1883, I don't think any of us were there. 1883, on August 27th, there was a, a massive volcanic explosion in Indonesia on the island of Krakatoa. Largest recorded uh, volcanic explosion in you know, modern history. And so this volcano on this island in Indonesia, it had been rumbling and, and exploding a little bit like over the course of several months in a row. And then on August 27th, the explosion was 10,000 times more powerful than an atomic bomb. The blast ruptured the eardrums of sailors 40 miles away. The sound wave is recorded to have traveled around the globe seven times. A tsunami with waves of more than 140 feet was caused. A cloud of ash reached an estimated 50 miles high. And so sunsets and sunrises were dramatically discolored across the globe for months. There were firefighting brigades called in from North America and Europe. And even though it was an uninhabited island, the the falling burning ash killed more than 36,000 people all over Southeast Asia. And those who had dared approach the island in months following said the explosion looked like the, the sky was on fire. And so Krakatoa was this large, lush, you know, beautiful mountainous island, and then in a moment it was gone. Like 70% of the island crumbled and fell into the ocean and is just underwater. I mean, there were two mountain peaks that, that crumbled and just, just vanished overnight. And so this, this beautiful, lush island became a barren wasteland of, of ash and lifeless, burnt ground. Now, in 1883, here's your little history nugget for the moment. This is at the time of the, the Industrial Revolution. The, the telegraph uh, had just been invented. This was, this was massive. This is like the proto-internet. And they had taken these giant cables, laid them across the Atlantic Ocean. So now North America and, and Europe could communicate with one another. It essentially started the modern age. And so people on, all over the planet were feeling like, like we did it, like mankind has tamed creation. All of this earth is now under our control. And then Krakatoa happened. I mean, nothing makes you feel 
smaller than something that massive that, that literally shaped the entire globe for months. And, and this is a timely reminder that in our, our high-tech, hyper-connected, globalized age that we're not quite as big as, and powerful as we think we are. But it's also kind of a, a parable, and this is where I want to make the, the illustration today, that it's a, it's, it, it reminds us of spiritual realities. Because our lives seem under control, and then suddenly they can explode, they can disintegrate, they can fall into the heart of the sea. I mean, think about it. We, we experience these small sort of rumblings all throughout our lives. And then in a moment, a, a Krakatoa can happen and there is nothing we can do about it. And then in between, we live with the knowledge that something might be coming. Some kind of massive disaster could be right around the corner, but we have no idea when, we have no idea what. And so I don't know if you resonate with that, but sort of like walking on eggshells throughout life, knowing that something awful could happen and just waiting for it to come. I mean, did you know that Yellowstone National Park, the entirety of the park, is on top of an active volcano? Like the whole thing, there's a blob, that's the scientific word, of volcanic magma underneath Yellowstone National Park that when it explodes, it could fill the Grand Canyon 11 times over and it could just go at any moment. Like we've had Yellowstone on our bucket list for a while. And I'm like, let's maybe wait, you know, can we let this thing happen first? And then we'll go and like hike the trails. What we're doing today is continuing in our series on praying the Psalms. And we've come to one of the most common forms of prayer in the Psalms, and it's lament. Lament is how we, we pray in a broken world. It's how we, we take the brokenness of our, of our lives and the brokenness that's all around us in this world. And we, we as the song says, take it to God in prayer. I mean, lament is the cry of the broken heart begging God for help, for mercy, for justice. It's our way of crying out, help God, where are you? How long will you hide your face from me? My world is falling apart. And maybe you grew up being told that you weren't allowed to talk back to God. You weren't allowed to argue with God. You weren't allowed to yell at God. And yet the Psalms are saying, like, there's a form of prayer for that. That's actually one of the main forms of prayer. And so what we're going to look at today is the cause for lament, the purpose of lament, and then the hope of lament. So the cause, purpose, and hope. And we're looking at Psalm 13, which is a really short psalm. It's just six verses, but it has these three movements, just two verses at a time. So that's how we're going to look at this. So first, the cause for lament. And here are the first two verses. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day, have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Now, these are the words of King David. And let's look at what is causing him or leading him to lament. First, he says there's sorrow in his heart day after day. We don't know what the exact cause is. It doesn't give us like a, a heading with the incident that was making David feel this way and in a way, I think that's helpful because we can identify with his experience and his, the rawness of his emotions. Now, it feels awful. He's disheartened. He's discouraged. He's mourning. He wants to feel better and nothing is working. And so not only does he have sorrow in his heart day after day, but the second thing is that he's wrestling with his thoughts. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? I don't know if you've experienced this, but where you, you want your, your mind to relax, 
And yet it just kind of keeps running and running and running, even in the middle of the night, or maybe there's some kind of you know, difficult experience you're facing and you just can't get your mind to slow down. Or maybe you're in a, a conflict with a friend or a family member and all you can do is like play out imaginary conversations in your mind. And you're wrestling with your thoughts over and over. And then third, he feels forgotten, abandoned by God. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I mean, isn't it comforting that this is in the Scriptures at all, that David, who's kind of like the guy in the Old Testament, I mean, like King David, and yet there were times when he turned to God and absolutely nothing happened. And he goes to pray, but he feels nothing. He opens God's Word and nothing connects. He wants to be near God, but he can't feel His presence at all. It seems like God has forgotten him, that he's hidden himself. And then fourth, he feels rejected and scorned by others. How long will my enemy triumph over me? I mean, it's bad enough to feel awful, but then to have other people coming in around you and and heaping insults on you or or blame or, or shame on top of you, and you feel like Maybe this is something wrong with me. Maybe everybody's right. Maybe I should call it quits or whatever. I mean, David feels awful. He feels like he's been utterly defeated. Now, maybe you resonate with one of these sorrow, anxious thoughts, loneliness and abandonment, feeling rejected by others. Maybe you connect with all four of them. I mean, in our modern world, David would be diagnosed with depression, anxiety, loneliness, post-traumatic disorder. I mean, his life is completely falling apart. He even says, he references life and death later in the psalm, and it's it's clear that he's thinking about his own death. I mean, he's struggling, he's angry, and he's he's bringing it to God. Right? Like, so in the the depths of how awful he feels, even though he's he's coming to God and, and not feeling God's presence, he's He's continuing to do it. He's continuing to go. He's on his knees. He's opening the word. He's seeking God's face. Now, if we think about our own, not only our own experience, but our own culture for a moment. I was reading a book this week by Mark Sayers, who's not an American, but he's kind of reflecting on American culture from the outside. And he says, American society, especially our foundation is, is the freedom of the individual. You know, I mean, personal autonomy, radical individualism. No one can tell me who I am. No one can push their thoughts on me. I am me. I am free. And he says the problem with living these these isolated lives, which you can be married, you can have a family, you can be in a church body and still be isolated if you're not actually letting people into your life. The problem is that living an isolated life will inevitably lead to anxiety. We're not meant to do life on our own. And what he says is that our whole system, our whole culture, American society is itself like an anxious system. So if you've heard of like family systems theory and psychology, a, a family can basically become a system that's either healthy or unhealthy. It can, it can kind of absorb and take on its own characteristics. And Sayers is saying American society is basically an unhealthy family. It's an anxious system in itself. And the grand goal of our society then becomes comfort, the desire to be outwardly successful and at peace inwardly. And so Sayer says, in a contemporary world, feeling good is the expected state of being. When one doesn't experience good feelings, if a task is unpleasant, unpleasant, if a relationship goes through a difficult period, if a job is tough, 
It's taken as a signal that something is wrong or that something is wrong with you. And so what people do is we, we develop little comfort zones where, where we can kind of find some measure of peace and comfort and not be challenged by other people, not be asked to grow, but just kind of be insulated from the hard things of this world. Meanwhile, everything around us says, if you just add this technique or this product, then you'll feel better. Then you'll be fine again. So basically, American culture does nothing to prepare us for suffering. And it tells us that if we're struggling, it's our fault. So happy Independence Day. I don't mean to be totally anti-American, but that's where we're at. Now, I'm not at all pointing the finger at you if you struggle with depression, if you struggle with anxiety, any of these things. Rather, I'm trying to say, of course you do. Like, look at our world, look at our system, look at our culture. Of course you're anxious. I mean, the burdens that are being laid on you should never be laid on an individual. You weren't meant to do life in such an isolated type of community. And when we're talking about these series, you know, it's funny what we do when we're laying out a series like praying the Psalms, we kind of get a a vision and a framework for it as a pastoral team. I kind of run point on laying out kind of a first draft of messages when we want to do 10 or 12 weeks. Here's what I'm thinking. And then, and then the other guys, we kind of bounce it off each other. And then we start to pick our topics, you know. Most of the time, it's pretty easy. It's like worship, Cam, honoring God, Mark, evangelism, Austin. And then when we got to lament on this one, it was like no discussion. It was like, that's Lineman. That's like his sweet spot. Lament goes to Lineman. Great. Actually, even, even our church network, it was like three years ago, I got a call from the executive director. We have these big conferences. And I had done like some breakout sessions before and like helped with some other teaching things. But he called me. He was like, hey, we want you to talk at the, you know, at the annual conference on the big stage. And I'm like, that's right. That's right. You do. What do you want? You want prayer? You want the renewal stuff? You want the power of the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we want you to talk on depression for 10 minutes. Like, really? Depression? Because I've got the Holy Spirit thing and I could go like 60. They're like, actually, depression. And if you could keep it to five, that would probably be better. <laughs> like, all right, got it. Now, the reason for this is I've shared many, many times in the church and personally that I've just wrestled with depression for so much of my life. I mean, for more than 20 years since the death of my brother, I've wrestled with insomnia, depression. I mean, Seasons of, of really intense darkness, followed by seasons, they, they were much better. I mean, good times and crushing times. I've been on medication, I've been off medication. Times when I've just felt absolutely great and normal, times where I've felt absolutely awful and like dying. I think I have a, a sort of proclivity towards depression based on my family history, my childhood experience, my own biology. A lot of things have helped me in my journey with depression, counseling, conversation with Jesse, sleep friendships, living at a sustainable pace, exercise, crushing fools on my road bike, you know, like I say. There's one thing that has consistently helped, that has helped more than anything else, and that's prayer. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising. Like, the thing that helps is God, sitting in the presence of God. I mean, coming before him and just, just laying it all out, just pouring out all of the, the anger and the frustration and the disconnection. All of those things, just, I mean, just dumping it at the feet of God. Sitting there, kicking and screaming, arguing, 
And then sort of settling down and, and just asking for more of God, more of his presence, more of his perspective. You know, a, a child who's, who's afraid of his father, who's afraid of the anger and the impatience and the rage, he'll learn not to talk back, right? But it's kind of counterintuitive that a child that feels love, that feels really secure, they'll be able to, to voice their frustrations strongly. That's where we're at as a family. We did that attachment parenting, you know. Now we're like detaching. You know, it's like you're kind of clingy. Can we chill a little bit? But when we know we're loved, when we know we're safe, that's where we, can, where we can ask, what's going on? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. This doesn't connect with what I know to be true of you, Lord. Now, David has a lot of cause for lament, and so do we. I mean, really, we could do a whole sermon on the, the social element of lament. We see that in, in Jeremiah and, and Lamentations and Micah, all the minor prophets, they, they kind of do a, a, an injustice lament. And we don't, I mean, that's not as much in the Psalms. This is kind of just the personal lament that we see from David. We have so, so many causes for lament in our world. And so here's the second thing, the purpose of lament. What is it for? Verses three and four, look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. See, the purpose of lament is, is bringing our, our sorrows, our discouragement, our, our anger and our sadness directly to God. One of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer, he just calls lament complaining. Like one of the main forms of prayer is complaining. Now you might say, well, well, how's that so? I remember back in the Exodus series earlier this year, we see the Israelites complaining in the desert, in the wilderness, about their lack of food, the lack of water. And they're, they're crying out against Moses, and they're crying out against God. And it's clear that God is angry with them, and he rebukes them for their, for their grumbling. But then it's like the next chapter, Moses goes before God and does almost all the same stuff. He's like, where's our food? Where's our water? We're vulnerable out here. You said you were going to protect us. How long will you just leave us like this? What are the nations going to think if we die out here? And it's like God delights in it. And the, the paradox is, is that we often complain against God when we should be complaining to God. Like complaining against God is, is doubting him and, and saying that he's doing all the right things and it's being discontent, but complaining to God is actually the proper response, taking the frustrations and the questions directly to him. And so often when we're lamenting, it ends up kind of coming out as complaining to, to each other. I mean, this happens at, at work probably for all of you. One of the easiest ways to build relationships at work is to have some kind of shared frustration, Right? You know, like the humidity, the traffic. It's like if you can bond over anything, it's something that you're both frustrated about together. It's like complaining, grumbling. It's so, so easy to do. It feels good in the moment, but it doesn't really do anything long term. It doesn't bring any kind of healing. But actually bringing these complaints, bringing these questions directly to God in prayer, that is what brings relief and healing. I mean, that need to, to let out the frustration, to, you know, to, to share it with your coworkers or whatever it is, that's, that's meant to go to God. We are meant to release it. We are meant to take it to the Lord in prayer. That's why David says, look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes. In other words, answer my request. Give me 
understanding and perspective, or I will sleep in death. I mean, this is like life and death for David. This really, really matters for David. Now, later in the series, I'm going to do a, a sermon on unanswered prayer. But for now, just think of these two things being held in tension. The first is that God will not answer every one of our prayers, and that's a cause for us to trust Him and to be content. And at the same time, God's Word tells us to keep on praying. So it's like be content when God doesn't answer your prayer and keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying. Like the parable of of the widow that just keeps coming to the unjust judge over and over and over with her need for justice Jesus says, finally, the unrighteous judge relents and gives her what she wants, not because she, not because the judge was righteous, but just because he got worn down. And like, this is Jesus teaching us about prayer. Like, go again and again and again, you have a good father. C.S. Lewis has a book called The Screwtape Letters, which is uh, a sort of conversations, you know, it's, it's fiction, but it's conversations between demons as they try to attack Christians. And so at one point, the senior demon explains to a junior demon that a steadfast faith in God is the most difficult thing to overcome. He says, do not be deceived, dear Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks around a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So he's saying the most dangerous, the most powerful, the most fruitful type of Christian is the one who feels like God has left them, feels abandoned, feels like they're not being heard in prayer, but they keep on going. They keep on praying. They keep on serving. They keep on doing all the things, going to community group, doing all the things they know to do until God meets them again the one whose life is falling apart or stretched to the max or exploding like a volcano, but keeps on opening the Psalms, going to the Father in prayer. This is why so many of the Psalms refer to God as our our rock, our refuge, our help, our fortress. You may know the name Joni Erickson Tata. She's a best-selling Christian author. And when she was a teenager, she was paralyzed in a diving accident. And so she was, I think, maybe 14, and she woke up in a hospital room as a quadriplegic. She says she desperately begged her family to let her die. But as she now writes, she lied there, utterly helpless, and finally began to cry out, God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. And she asked her sister to put a Bible in front of her, and she put a pen in her mouth so she could turn the pages And she began to read. Years later, she writes, I was amazed to learn that God welcomes our laments. I would eventually learn mainly through lamentations and psalms that nothing is more freeing than knowing God understands. When we are in pain, God feels the sting in his chest. Our frustrations and questions do not fluster him. He knows all about them. He wrote the book on them. More astoundingly, he invites us to come and air our grievances before him. And I look at that and I'm like, man, where do you get that? How do you get that kind of perspective, that kind of strength? And we know that's not just going to come from within us. So this is the third thing, the hope of lament. Verses five and six, but I trust. 
but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing of the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. I mean, this short psalm is such a perfect pattern for our lament. It begins with exasperation. Where are you, O Lord? These five questions, where have you gone? And it ends with rejoicing, with trust. And the process is critical. And I think modern Christianity is, has often taken far too much from American society in the ways that we just talked about. The, the individualism, the, the need for comfort and, and relief from anything hard. And so too often we get Christian advice that's simply like, look on the bright side. Or like, it's not that bad. Or like, don't worry, all things work together for good. And while that's true and biblical, it's often misapplied and just totally mistimed. I mean, some of this is just junk advice. You don't know that it's going to get better, at least not in this life. What Christians often try to do, I'm afraid, is to go around suffering. To find relief by not, not facing the darkness itself. What the scriptures do is they show us how to go through suffering. I mean, to, to face it head on and to actually move through it instead of sort of running away from the darkness, away from the sunset, turning and facing it, knowing that the sun will come up. Anytime we try to go around suffering, it doesn't do us any good. We try to push down depression or push down anger or anxiety. It always sort of just leaks out. It comes out sideways. We yell at one another. We turn to addictive habits. We do all sorts of things because we're not facing the darkness. This is what David does. He, he faces it. He goes through the suffering. He refuses to go around. And what he discovers in the end is God's love. The most important word in this psalm is unfailing love. You're like, that's two words. In my defense, in Hebrew, it's one word. <laughs> so the Hebrew word is hesed. You don't need to know a lot of Hebrew. My Hebrew is like very, very minimal. You can know Yahweh, Shalom, and Hesed. All right, Hesed is God's covenantal love. It's, it's his unbreaking, unchanging love. Our love, you know, the scriptures only use this word when it's referring to God's love for us. It doesn't use it in terms of our love for God or our love for one another. Hesed love is God's covenantal, unfailing love for us. The covenant meaning his unbreak, unbreakable promise that he makes to his people. There are all sorts of covenants in the Old Testament, but they all come down to, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so his said love is just part of who God is. It's his covenant faithfulness. It's his, his personal presence to us. It's the overflow of the love that has eternally existed within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. And so this said love now pours out onto his people, onto us, because why not? Like he's God, he is love, he's full of said love, so of course it pours out onto us, often at great personal cost to himself. said love is, in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I know I quote every week, it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. 
And so David says, after all this lamenting, after having sorrow in his heart day after day, after wrestling with his anxious thoughts, after feeling abandoned by God, after feeling like his enemies have triumphed over them, facing death in the face, I mean, he says, I rejoice in your unfailing love. I trust in your said love. And Charles Spurgeon wrote on this verse, the mercy seat has so refreshed the poor weeper that he clears his throat for a song. If we have mourned with him, let us now dance with him. It is worthy to be observed that the joy is all the greater because of the previous sorrow. As calm is all the more delightful in recollection of the preceding storm. Now, if you catch that, that's hugely important. I'll, I'll illustrate. We had a time, my first year as a pastor, I was in Louisville, and we, we had this young church that had just started that was growing like rapidly. I mean, it was a lot of fun, really exciting. We had just been given a building, and it's like 9.55 right before service. And so people are, are coming in, you know, they're getting their coffee, they're coming into the auditorium, the band's ready, the, you know, the, the speaking pastor, Chad, was ready to roll. And like 9.55, just we lose all electricity, I mean, like total power loss. Somebody makes a phone call, and it's like, yeah, this whole part of the city is out, and it probably won't be back for several hours, which is kind of like panic moment for a new pastor. And I was kind of like in charge of that kind of stuff, like the electricity, I guess. And so I was like, what in the world do we do? We've got like a couple minutes to figure this out. So we ended up pulling all of the, the singers and vocalists uh, sort of up front. We just picked like five really classic hymns, like Amazing Grace, things that everyone will know because you can't have the screen. It was in an auditorium like this, so it was pitch dark without light. And so somebody kind of strummed on a guitar. We sang the songs. Chad got up, had like a light over his notes and, and preached the whole sermon. But in my recollection, it was the very last song of the service. It was like, boom, all the lights came back on. And it was like rowdy cheering. You know, I mean, it was like, finally, and then we closed this last song. It felt like heaven. It was incredible. And the point is that the light felt that much better because of the darkness. You know, we had taken it for granted. In the same way, Spurgeon is saying that the joy is greater because of the previous sorrow. The calm is more delightful because of the preceding storm. The light had always been available, but because of the darkness now, it felt totally new. There is nothing more powerful than a believer who loses everything but still dwells in the love of God. David's saying there's, there's a, a sort of comfort and, and happiness that might come from going around suffering, but there's a true joy that you'll only know by going through it. David had known of God's unfailing love, his covenant love, but now he's, he's tasting it, he's seeing it. He's known of God's justice and mercy, but now he's collapsing on it. On this side of the story, we know that David's life was a, a precursor. It was looking ahead to the one true king who was to come. David was a shepherd, but soon would come the good shepherd. David defeated Goliath, but one was coming that would defeat Satan's sin and death. David reigned with justice over his kingdom, and he danced wildly before the Lord, but the Messiah would reign with justice over all the cosmos and would live in perfect fellowship with the Father. So David's life, of course, was... It was incomplete. It was insufficient. We see his sin. I mean, he committed horrific sins as we saw two weeks ago. And that's the point. He's, 
He's not enough. He's not our hope. We don't just need somebody with a heart like God. We need like God's actual heart. We need God to come down, take on flesh, the Son of Man come to earth, the forever one, Jesus Christ. It's because of God's has said love poured out in Jesus that we have hope and lament. I'll say that again. It's because of God's has said love poured out in Jesus that we have hope and lament. And you remember Krakatoa? After 150 years, after the explosion, after it fell into the ocean, what it is today is remarkable. It is once again a lush, beautiful habitat with millions of species of life. It's estimated that there are far more species of life now than there was at the time of the volcanic eruption. And this is how biology works. Death makes way for new life. Ashes turned to soil. The soil still had seeds in it. The seeds turned into saplings. The saplings became giant trees. And this is how God's universe works. From death comes life. From destruction comes resurrection. From ashes come beauty. From lament comes celebration. Made me think of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. The Lord Almighty is with us. He says, be still and know that I am God. Let's pray.